Good morning. Man, every time I see that kid get that vaccination, it makes me hurt. Into the skin. Glad you're here this morning. We're going to continue our series, uh, Politics, Religion, and Church Unity. So I want to start off with a question this morning. And by the way, all of you who are watching online may notice that things look a little bit different this morning. And those of you who are in here probably don't realize this is actually our online service today. If you look over there and over there, you see cameras. So everybody needs to smile. They pivot, so you might find yourself on camera later. So like I said, if you're online, we've, uh, we've just had some issues with, with uh, everything. So we've decided we're going to try over here for a little while with our online service. So those of you watching online, we're, we're glad you're watching with us. So as I said, I want to ask you a question as we begin this morning. Anybody in here familiar with the term fundamental attribution error? Anybody know what that term means? Nobody. That's great because I like it when I can use words that nobody else knows about and it just kind of makes me look smart. Here's what fundamental attribution error means. It is actually a cognitive bias that I think we all get sucked into during this political time that we're in right now and during this pandemic that's going on. And it goes like this. This cognitive bias causes us to attribute people's behavior to their character. In other words, that person behaves the way he or she does because that is actually who he or she is. But we don't do that with our own behavior. With our own behavior, we attribute it to things like circumstances and environmental factors and things of that nature. So just let me give you an example, and I think it'll help you kind of key in here on this, on this terminology. So let's say you work with this guy that is always late. I mean, he's just always late. And so you think to yourself, this guy is lazy He's irresponsible and he's disorganized. That's why that guy is always late because character-wise, he is lazy, disorganized, and irresponsible. But when you're late, you don't look in the mirror, right, and go, I'm lazy, irresponsible, and disorganized. I mean, you don't do that, right? When you're late, it's because, oh, you know, the kids kind of got started late this morning and I was helping get them ready for school. Or I had a good friend who called me and he's kind of down. I just had to take some time to, to, to kind of cheer him up a little bit. There was a traffic jam. That's why I was late because I am responsible and I am organized, right? That's how it kind of works, right? Now, this is how this comes into politics. This fundamental attribution bias happens when we assume in, in the political realm and during this pandemic and stuff that a reason, the way a person thinks or, or their behavior is directly related to the kind of person they are, not societal factors and not environment. So when it comes to the political scene, this is what it sounds like. All Democrats are corrupt. I know it. I've done the research. Every single Democrat is corrupt. By the way, like I said last week, this is going to get a little awkward, okay? Just let's get awkward together. 
and, uh, or, you know, all Republicans, they're heartless. I mean, they just are. Every single Republican is heartless. I know it. I've done the research. And that's the way we think. You're corrupt. You're heartless. You know, we just, just kind of go back and forth. During the pandemic, all of you people that refuse to wear a mask, you're just selfish. You're just selfish. That's what people think, right? And then the flip side of that, all you people that are wearing the mask, you're, you just bought into this whole government thing. You're letting the government control you. And, and that's how this cognitive bias plays in. You know, all the Democrats, we know they're all socialists, right? I've done the research. And probably all the Republicans are racist. All of them, I've done the research. And so we make those kind of, of leaps, so to speak. Now, I hate to burst your bubble. And some of you are going to dislike what I have to say. That's okay. Some of you might even hate me. I don't know. Fine, do that now. But when you go home for lunch, think a little bit about what I've said. Kind of think about this. Mature, emotionally intelligent people Curious, empathetic people, they don't fall for that. We are in a time where political rhetoric and pandemic rhetoric has just grabbed us by the nose and led us out there to say silly things and believe silly things that just aren't true. And you're better than that. And I'm better than that. So let's not do that anymore. In fact, you can even start calling people out in person or on Facebook. You just suffer from cognitive bias. And they'll be like, what? And you'll be like, yeah, I'm a socially intelligent, empathetic person, and I don't suffer from that anymore because I heard this fabulous sermon on it. Seriously, though, we're going to be looking at the book of Galatians today. And uh, we're going to be looking at two verses primarily, and I just want to give you a little bit of background as we dive into Galatians today. To understand Galatians, you need to understand that Paul is writing this letter to the church at Galatia. And the church of Galatia is kind of made up of these two groups of people. You have these Gentiles who has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's part of the church. And then you have these Jewish Christians. They're also believers. They've accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And, and these Jewish Christians, some of them believe that even though they've accepted Christ, they still have to keep doing Old Testament law, uh, Old Testament sacrifices, maybe Old Testament eating practices. They still have to do that kind of stuff. And so you have this division and you have this conflict in the church at Galatia between these Gentile believers who believe, no, you don't have to do that. You've accepted Jesus Christ. That's all that matters. And they're the right ones. And Paul acknowledges that. And then he's, but then they have these Jewish believers who are still hung up on keeping all the Old Testament teachings and that you still have to do those. And so Paul's writing to them, and he's talking about freedom, and he's talking about how you don't have to do those things anymore, that once you accept Jesus Christ, Jesus died on a cross, all that Old Testament law is gone. And so in chapter 6, in verse 1, he talks about if someone sins, and that's, that's how he starts off chapter 6, you need to go to that person. The word sin here is, is, a, is a word, what he's talking about here is, 
It's somebody not necessarily willfully sinning, because remember what the context is here, these Jewish believers. It's somebody that's kind of become entrapped, so to speak. They've just kind of fallen into this, not, not on purpose or willfully. And he's talking about these Jewish believers primarily. He said they've just kind of fallen into this. And he says, you more mature people, that's what he's saying here with the go to the brother. When you go to them, you more mature Christians, you, you Galatian believers that understand, go to them and carry their burden. Now when he says carry their burden, this, this is interesting. Do you know what you do when you carry somebody's burden in, in a spiritual sense? You listen, you lean in, you learn. Therefore, when we carry each other's burdens, and remember this, these Gentiles and Jews here are extremely divided. When you carry each other's burdens and you learn about each other and you understand each other better, what happens? You're not nearly as divided. And these are very, a very divided group of people at this church. So when you lean in and you carry their burden, you're not as divided, and what unites you comes to the surface more, which would be what? Jesus Christ, which would be the same in our church. When we carry each other's burdens, we learn about each other, we, we understand each other better. And I want you to understand, there's going to be a lot of history involved in what we're going to talk about today because the history is really important. And when you look at the first century believers, they changed the world because they were willing to be countercultural. And so we're in this series, as I mentioned to you earlier, we're in, this, in the second part of, of this series. And I know some of you probably grew up, grew up in churches that, that maybe talked a lot about politics. And probably, if your church talked about politics, it was probably from one point or the other, you know? They took one side or the other, am I right? If, if you went to a church like that. And I just want you to know this during this whole series. I've been here 22 years. I have never stood in the pulpit and recommended or endorsed a candidate or a party. You know why? Because... I don't believe that's my calling. My calling is to preach Jesus Christ and to preach the Bible. It's not to push parties or candidates. You never will hear me do that. Other preachers feel differently. That's fine. I'm just telling you what I feel called to do. And I think that's important. I'm not pushing anything here. So last week, as we kind of got into this series, we talked about the thing that we all kind of need to wrestle down to the ground with is, is that we need to make sure that our politics are filtered through our faith. Just imagine a funnel here with a filter in it. Well, that funnel needs to be our faith, and the politics needs to be poured through it. But what happens a lot of times, it's the other way around. The funnel up here is our politics, and then we're pouring our faith through it. And we're trying to filter our ideologies, our political ideologies and stuff, through our, through our, we're trying to filter faith through our political ideologies. And it doesn't work. And I know it's extremely difficult to do, and some Christians think they're already doing it. And, and they're not. And, it, and it's hard. Here's the point. This is really important. We need to be Christ followers first. Not Republicans, not Democrats, not Libertarians, not Independents. We need to be Christ 
followers first. And when we do that, then we can change culture. And we do the world a big disfavor when we take our political ideologies and we try to shove Jesus into it or we try to wrap Jesus around it. Jesus didn't come to join a party. Jesus did not come to be a political note to any political platform. He did not come to support an existing structure. He didn't come to take sides. He came to replace everything that was already in place. Jesus came to establish his kingdom. He came to establish an upside down kingdom. And when we try to shove Jesus into our political ideologies or we try to wrap Jesus and Jesus believes in what this party believes in, we do people a disfavor because we confuse them and we rob them of the true message of Jesus Christ. First and foremost as Jesus followers, that's what we need to be. Not political party people. Yes, it's important. And if God's called you to politics, you should do that. If you have a bent that way, absolutely you should do that. And you should change, try to change the country for what you believe in. Absolutely. And you should vote your conscience. But let's also be honest. Neither party is truly a biblical party. Now I'm going to get the emails right. I mean, aren't we oftentimes choosing between the less of two evils, the lesser of two evils? I mean, let's just be honest about it. Our leaders let us down a lot. Our parties have let us down a lot. I mean, we have a president supposed to be staunch Christian, and he calls it two Corinthians. What does that tell you? We've had other political parties who committed immorality with interns while they were president of the United States. I mean, sometimes we're just choosing between the lesser of two evils. And we need to be honest about that. And this is a big deal in the early church, too, because they didn't agree with the Roman emperors, not even the good ones. But they stood up for what was right. And the ecclesia, or the gathering of Jesus, which we call the church now, it stood in direct opposition to the wrong that was in the empire. And here's the thing, to the empire, this was, this was disturbing. They didn't understand Christians, and they didn't understand what they were doing. So eventually, the empire has to strike back. Did y'all see what I did there with the words? <laughs> no, no, anyway, seriously. So the empire, they don't understand Christians. They get frustrated with Christians. So they decide to impose sanctions on Christians because the Christians are really different, and they, don't, they just don't get them. And so they make them all promise that they will give allegiance to Caesar. And it's hard for us to imagine. I'm just going to try to get you to imagine today. Because it was baffling to the Roman Empire, the leaders of the empire. What was going on with Christianity? Because it was just so opposite of everything else that was going on. Classes of people who don't normally mingle like Jew and Gentiles were coming to the same church. Rich and poor were worshiping together. That didn't happen in the Roman Empire. Slaves and masters were coming and mingling together. 
And the empire didn't understand this. And, and then they were voluntarily worshiping a crucified God. And it's just, it's just puzzling to them. Like, how do they overcome that they're thinking about the Christians? How do they overcome these social norms? How do they overcome their racism and their prejudices? How, how are they doing that? How are they overcoming their class distinctives? And why are they worshiping this crucified God? Do you know the answer to that? Because the message of Jesus Christ was clear. He came to establish a new kingdom and everybody was invited to participate in it. And it was a countercultural kingdom to what was going on. And we're going to look at some words in chapter 3, in Galatians chapter 3, the other kind of main verse that we want to look at this morning. Remember in that background that I told you about? It's Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. And here's what it says. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now we read this, and I'm, I'm sure nobody in here just went, oh, wow, I get it. Because we read this and we think to ourselves, of course, yeah, that all makes sense. Yeah, whatever, duh, got it. We don't realize what a big deal this is. Would you look at the first phrase? Put yourself in, in the first century. This is neither Jew nor Gentile. Jew and Gentiles don't like each other. I mean, they really, I mean, hate would be a better word. And he's saying, neither Jew nor Gentile. And you know what the Jews are thinking? What? What? I've got Yahweh and you expect me to share him? I've got Yahweh, yes I do. How about you? I mean, right? And you want us to share it with the Gentiles? We don't like those people. They're, they're heathens. And we're going to worship the same God? You want us to come together and worship the same God? Yep, yep. And what are the Gentiles thinking? I'm not going to go there with the Jews. I'll get cooties. These are the people that hate our guts, won't give us the time of day for years. They won't let us date our, their daughters. They eat funny foods. They wear those funny hats. And you want us to worship together? That's what those people are seeing when they're seeing this. They're not going, oh yeah, I got that. No, they're like, that's crazy, Paul. What are you talking about? Paul's like, there's a new king in town. It's an upside down kingdom. All that other stuff goes away. We've all accepted Jesus Christ as our savior. Put away all that other stuff. There's no Jew and there's no Gentile anymore. Wow. But he doesn't stop there. Neither slave nor free. And again, we're like, yeah, yeah, of course we get that. Slavery's wrong. You don't, you don't do that kind of stuff. Not in the first century. This is like earth shattering. I mean, all at once, Paul, you're telling us that, that as a master and slaves that we're, that we're viewed the same, same self-esteem, same status. Wait, you're telling me that God sees my slaves the same way that he sees me, the master? I mean, Paul, come on. Everybody knows since the beginning of time that some people were meant to rule over other people and some people were meant to be ruled over. Come on, Paul. All of us know that. And understand, in the first century, just about everybody had the potential to be somebody's slave. 
You know, we think about slavery in the United States, and, and it comes down a lot to skin color. That's what we think about. Not in the first century. Everybody had the potential to be a slave. You missed a house payment? They might come for your house and your daughter. You missed a horse payment? They might come for your horse and your son. I mean, it was just totally different. And so people are saying, Paul, I, I've heard this. I've been taught this. Everybody knows this my whole life. And now you're telling us that we're all equal? That we're all part of this ecclesia together? Paul, what kind of kingdom are you talking about here? It doesn't make sense. Paul's not done. He keeps on going. He says, nor is there male and female. Now understand this, and I've kind of mentioned this, and this is, this is getting even worse for these people because they just don't get it. In the first century, women were commodities. Unless you were nobility or wealthy, you had no status. You had no dignity. You belonged to a man. I mean, that's just the way it was. And now Paul's coming along and he's saying, well, you can do away with that because in God's eyes, the status is equal. And there's dignity here. And you know what the men are thinking, right? Wow, I hope the women don't find out about this. Thank goodness they can't read, right? This is huge. I mean, Paul is changing something. The average woman, you know, zilch nada was how she was looked at as far as social status and dignity and that kind of stuff. And Paul's coming along, and later Peter came along, and here's what Peter said. He backs up Paul. He says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner is heirs with you, the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. He's saying, hey, men, you need to be careful how you treat the women in your life. You need to be careful how you treat your wives. You are joint hairs together. You need to be careful. He said, yeah, they might be your wives and your daughters, but they're God's daughters first and foremost. And Jesus and the New Testament teachings of Paul and Peter totally changed and elevated the way women were looked at in the first century. But he's still not done. He goes on and there's one more phrase. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You mean, I'm one with slaves and women and men and freedmen and Jew and Gentiles. We're all one. We're all equal in Jesus Christ. Listen, this, this, is, this is not a little tweak. This is not taking your carburetor and making a little adjustment on the throttle. This is like throwing your carburetor off for you guys here and sticking on a full-blown turbocharged fuel injection. For you ladies, it's like, you know, you had a broom all your life and you get a vacuum cleaner, you wash dishes by hand, you get a cool dishwasher with all the bells and whistles. This is a major, major shift when he says all of this stuff. And we look at it, we don't understand that. But it is major. And this is why it's foolish for, for any church or group of churches or church in general to be divided over political issues. Because one day these political issues are going to be over and Jesus is still going to be king. Right? Can I get an amen? Yeah. That's why. 
So, so work with me a little bit. So we're, we're going to move past Paul and Peter, and we're up in Nero's the emperor. 45 years later, give, give or take a little bit. And so at this particular time, Peter and Paul have been killed. Jesus has already been crucified a little longer than 45 years. And all, most of the disciples are dead. Most of them have been martyred in some way, shape, or form. Most of them. So basically, all the superheroes of the faith, 45 years later, are dead. Think about that. Peter, Paul, Jesus, most of the disciples. So what's going to happen to Christianity? It's done, right? The empire is won. Christianity's done. No. Christianity goes crazy. And it keeps flourishing. And it keeps going. And because of that, again, the empire over all these years is still puzzled about these Christians. And the Roman Empire is beginning to fray a little bit. And they can't understand why, so they start blaming it on the Christians, right? You're in politics, you blame it on somebody, defer, right? And uh, so that's what they're doing. And they're saying, well, it's because of the Christians, the gods, little g, are, are, are angry because not as many sacrifices are being made, and it's these Christians' fault. And they, they make an edict that, 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 you know, all Christians need to be brought in, and they need to swear allegiance, as I was kind of mentioning to you before. And this letter goes out to this Roman emperor named Pliny. Pol I don't know how you say it, but I'm going to call him Pliny. I don't know what it is about some of those guys, but they're not always the nicest masculine looking guys are they but uh, anyway getting sidetracked here I'm gonna get myself in trouble somebody's gonna send me an email now but anyway he is a governor of a region remember Pontius Pilate was a governor of the region of, of, of Galilee well he is the governor of a region what we call modern-day Turkey and he gets that instruction, hey, you need to bring all the Christians in. You need to punish some of them. You need to find out, you know, what's going on. And this doesn't make sense to him. He's like, I, I, I don't get it. I, I, I don't see Christians doing those kinds of things. And so he takes it upon himself to kind of send some spies out in the Christian community, arrest some Christians, kind of rough them up to kind of get the truth out of them. And what he finds out, he puts in a letter that has survived antiquity. And this is basically his conclusion. I'm not going to read the letter to you. But I'm going to read you the conclusions that he has, that he sends to the emperor about, and like I said, he doesn't understand it, that Christians were causing trouble. This is the first one he mentions. They were meeting on a fixed day of the week before dawn. Now we know that to be Sunday. And understand, there aren't weekends for people like this back then. You just work. Every day is a work day. So these people are meeting at 5.30 in the morning. And boy, I guess that's a real problem, right? But that's how committed these people are. They're meeting at 5.30 in the morning. Now let me ask you this. Don't, don't raise your hand. If we started meeting at 5.30 on Monday morning, how many of y'all would be there? Don't, like I said, don't raise your hand. I don't know that I'd be there. <laughs> but that's how committed these people were. They were so committed that they're meeting before the workday at 5.30 in the morning. 
Secondly, he finds out when they meet, they speak, they have a preacher, they teach, and they sing songs. Well, how's the empire going to survive people singing, right? That's what Pliny's thinking. And then he goes on, and he found out they were taking an oath each time they met. Now, now surely that's subversive, right? They're, they're plotting. They're taking an oath to each other to stage a revolution. That's what they're doing. That's the whole problem. You know what their oath was? They swore to each other these types of things. That they wouldn't commit fraud. That they would always be totally honest with each other. That their financial dealings would always be above board. That... They would always treat people decently. They wouldn't commit adultery. They wouldn't lie. I mean, who can have those kind of people around, right? I mean, I mean, what's the deal here? They sound so dangerous. Can't have people in your towns like that, right? And that's kind of his conclusion. That's kind of how he feels about it. And he's, he kind of is like, no wonder I haven't heard about this. These people... They're the finest people in the community. And I'm supposed to arrest them? Let me tell you something else that's really amazing about this. Gods with the little G in the Roman Empire, they didn't care about morals. Morals weren't in the picture. They, they could care less about morality. They didn't care how you treated your wife. They didn't treat, care how you treated your family. They didn't care how you treated your kids. That stuff didn't even matter. They didn't care how you treated other people. They just wanted to make sure that, that, that your blood offering and your, and your grain offerings happened. There was no morality involved in little gods. But then these Christians come along and there's an, an ethical element in it. There's a moral element in it. And they're loving each other unconditionally. And they're treating their women with respect and, and slaves and free people are on even ground. And the Jew and the Gentiles, they're breaking down their barriers. That's all new because Roman gods didn't do that kind of stuff. So there's something different. And they're taking this oath. And they feel accountable to each other and to God about how they treat each other. Can you imagine what would happen in our communities if, if, if people met and, and, and swore oaths to each other like that? To be honest and always above board in their, their financial teachings and, and, and you know, not lying to each other and, and always you know, no adultery, treating women and, and, and husbands and everybody treating each other the way it ought to be. And so this guy here, he's like, I don't get it. Why is this group angering the gods why are these people thought to be undermining the empire why am i supposed to round up and eliminate these people it made no sense so christians were counterculture and they were culturally disruptive and this culture that worshiped strength and worshiped warfare and worshiped conquest and victory. This is totally different. It's counterculture. And these people in that, the empire and the Romans, they thought this is just ridiculous. They didn't want anything to do with it. It was appalling. It was ridiculous. But you know what else? 
There were people in the Roman Empire who found this very appealing and the kingdom of God very appealing and this upside down kingdom of God made sense to them. Listen to what Jordan Peterson said. Christianity achieved the well-nigh impossible. This is the part we cannot even begin to get our minds around. The Christian doctrine elevated the individual soul. The empire didn't do that. Little g-gods didn't do that. But Christianity comes along and says, each person is important. And each person is equal. And all of us, this has shaped the Western world. And all of us as Christ followers, everybody that's listening this morning and everyone that's watching online, we are a part of that. They shocked their culture and their message changed the world. And I just don't know if I can get you to understand how big this was. I mean, we think sometimes we're far apart racially and politically and the way we look at the pandemic and a host of other ways, socially, economically. We think we're far apart. But the Jew and the Gentile... I mean, they were much further apart than we were. Much further apart. And slaves and freed people, I mean, there was not even a question. You were a slave, you were a slave, and that's it, period. You had no hope in life. Women, who cares? That's the way they thought. I mean, yes, there's some things in our society that aren't right. But compared to what was wrong with them, And yet all of these Christians maybe were able to put aside those differences and come together. And they changed the world. Because you understand by the third and fourth century that the Roman Empire, quote unquote, was a Christian empire? How'd that happen? The Christians were able to put aside their differences, their division. If they can do that, Can't we set that stuff aside? The early church did. They carried each other's burdens. They learned to listen. They learned to understand that kind of thing. Now, I understand. And if I've gotten any negative feedback, and I didn't get hardly any last week, this was it. I just just can't understand how some people can do stuff like that. And I'll, I'll explain that in just a minute. I, 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 and I understand we're passionate, right? When you start talking about politics and stuff like that, people get passionate. So if I've gotten any negative, it, it, it's just kind of this idea. I just can't see how a person could call themselves a Christian and believe that. I don't see how somebody could call them a Christian, themselves a Christian and vote for that. I can't believe somebody would call themselves a Christian and, and not understand the implications of that. I don't understand how somebody could call a Christian and be against that or before that. I understand. Passions get in there. I don't see how you can look at the pandemic and think that, whatever. That, that's, I know that. I understand. Some people are passionate and you're thinking that to yourself. And we may never understand why we don't see everything the same because we were raised different. We have different experiences, different environments, all that kind of stuff. Why Christians will look at things different. Why two Christians can look at the same verse and apply it to two different political spectrums, right? That happens. We may never understand that. 
But what we do is we set that aside. And yes, on a Tuesday in November, you need to vote who you need to vote for. And you need to vote what your conscience tells you to vote. And, and you don't need to be influenced by anybody telling you what to do or vote because somebody's putting some pressure on you. You need to do what your conscience tells you to do. But let's not let that divide the church. If these first century Christians were this far apart, I mean, just can't even stretch my arms far enough. We ought to be able to set aside those differences no matter how passionate we might be, no matter how we might think the Bible supports us on our particular view. Because you can, I told you last week, I can make the Bible preach both ways if I wanted to. There are passages that support Democratic platform and there's passages that support the Republican platform. But if, they, if we can set that stuff aside, bear each other's burdens. Like we said last week, disagree politically. Love unconditionally and pray for unity and look for ways to work for unity. And when we do that, our church and our community and our world is going to be a better place. And listen, once upon a time, a group of first century Christians did that. And they changed the world. If we'll do that, our country can be a little less divided. And it's up to you and I. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. and Father, I thank you for those that are watching online. I thank you for the folks that are here this morning. And Father, I just pray that somehow this morning we just set aside our political ideologies for a little while. And Father, we just try to listen to what you have to say to us. I know people are passionate about different things, but Father, let us not divide the church. Let us try to understand and agree to disagree rather than divide and name call and those types of things. Father, thank you for loving us and thank you for showing us what grace looks like. Pray all these things in Jesus' name.